Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Have you thought about inheritance? What are you going to do when you want to pass your Bitcoin on to your heirs or your family and your loved ones? Hector Rosencrantz of Casa joins me to talk about this, and we talk about a number of things around securing our Bitcoin, self-custody and custodial solutions, how early it is in Bitcoin inheritance, Casa, Covenant, hardware wallets, and multi-sig and inheritance setups. Will they standardize? This show brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin holds a deep conviction that Bitcoin is the future of money. Swan's aim is to help you maximize your position in this dominant digital monetary network. As a Swan private client, you will have unlimited access to their team, strategic resources, and commitment to Bitcoin education. This is an asymmetric investment of unparalleled proportions, rapidly becoming the preeminent wealth preservation asset for every individual and institution in the world. An opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy-impacting wealth for your family or company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. The Swan private team stands ready to earn the right to walk alongside you on every step of this journey into the future of money. Learn more at swanbitcoin.com private or email the CEO, Corey, directly, corey at swanbitcoin.com. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can lend or borrow Bitcoin and stablecoins globally and anonymously. Lend at HodlHodl is a way to earn extra income on your stablecoins by lending with an average of 25% APR. On the other hand, if you have Bitcoin and you need some fiat, you no longer need to sell. You can actually collateralize some of your Bitcoin and borrow against that. And you will still hold one key in the two of three multi-signature controlling your Bitcoin during the loan period. HODL HODL does not hold your funds. So this is a peer-to-peer lending and borrowing platform. You set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Check it out at lend.hodlhodl.com. Are you interested in Bitcoin mining? Compass is an online marketplace making it easier for everyone to do that. With Bitcoin, you want to be regularly accumulating and mining is one way to do that. With Compass, you can select an ASIC machine and purchase that and that will be sent at one of the facilities that they have vetted around the world. And so you can get involved in the mining game without necessarily having to put in millions and millions of dollars. So you can tap into the economies of scale that Compass are helping provide for you and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. Remember, for many of us, we can't really profitably mine on our home residential power rates so with compass you can access better power rates so compass offer hardware and hosting bundles so you don't need advanced technical knowledge you can quickly get started go to compassmining.io to start mining bitcoin today hector welcome to the show hey stefan how are you doing today Doing well. I know you've been talking a lot about, you know, securing your keys and doing some of this stuff. And I know you are keen to talk about inheritance. And I know this is a big thing for a lot of us as Bitcoiners. We think we're going to live forever, don't we? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We that's that's the plan at least, but it's it's going to prepare for the contingency just in case. <laughs> yeah. So look, just for listeners who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So uh, my, my name is Hector Rosecrans. I'm the director of client services at Casa. I've been in this role for uh, for two years now, uh, a little bit of a uh, little bit of time in the industry before that. I actually got started here at uh, in the blockchain things at JP Morgan. Um, so I, I, I like to point out, I went from blockchainer to shitcoiner to Bitcoiner. I'm really happy with where <laughs> I've landed on, on, on that spectrum. But yeah, and then I also have a background in the, uh, in, in the military. I was in the US Navy for a while. And that's uh, 
that's really, you know, kind of what's, uh, you know, what, what kind of brought me to CASA is it's putting together the security side of things, the technology side of things, the economic side of things, like bringing all that together uh, was what really kind of brought me to Bitcoin. And yeah, helping people kind of solve the problem of self-custody is this technical challenge. But at the same time, it's, uh, you know, it's it's something that's really important to uh, to get right and to make it user friendly. And so, yeah, that's uh, that's basically what I what I get to do all day is uh, help people be uh, be better, more secure Bitcoiners. Yeah, that's great. And so I'm trying to keep the show accessible for new people, right, for new coiners out there. And a common thing I hear from people, even when I'm out at meetups and I'm talking to new coiners out there, they're, they're a bit scared about taking their coins off the exchange, right? They're like, I've got some coin. And I'll ask them, hey, have you learned to self-custody? And they're like, oh, oh no, I've still got that on the exchange or I've still got it with the broker or, you know, and so it, it's about trying to make it easy for them to sort of come off the exchange, at least starting small, right? And then slowly, as you get more comfortable, you know, you do these things for yourself, but it obviously takes a bit of work and practice and it's not, it's not just something that comes for free, right? You have to put in the time. Yeah, absolutely. You, you really, you do. Um, and this is like, this is one of those places where I think that like that, uh, you know, just I, I lean on some of my military background is, you know, you learn to operate weapon systems. These are things that are incredibly important. Um, it's important to understand them. It's important to know how to use them right. But ultimately they are tools. Um, they're tools that are, incredibly powerful that uh, can grant you a lot of kind of capability and the ability to be the, you know, to exist in the world in a certain way. But if you don't understand how to use them, you can certainly hurt yourself. And I'll also be the first person to admit, I got a ledger when I was getting into Bitcoin back in the day, I got a ledger and that thing sat on my desk for months because I was terrified that I was going to do the wrong thing. It's like, I wrote down the seed phrase, but I was like, did it get on my camera? Was it possible someone was scanning it? You know, do I have to reset it now? How do I reset it? Wait, did I do like a small test transfer? Did I get those funds off? It's, it can be really intimidating. And that's like, that's really what one of, uh, one of my biggest goals is, is as a Bitcoiner is to make it more approachable and make it easier to do that and, and try to solve some of those problems from like a technical perspective, but also from a, from like a user experience perspective to just make it easier to do that make it feel a lot more comfortable to like to take that step and uh, take take that leap into self-custody yeah of course and so that's definitely the you know for new listeners that's definitely the ethos we encourage is that you take the time you learn uh, and there are some basic tools and basic competence that you'll just you'll just have to do and i think going with your analogy there of it's a tool and you need to learn to use it and it's like you need to drill it right you need to be ready to use it so that way when the time comes you know exactly how to do it you've done this process you know so what would be some of the i guess first level things people need to learn and know before they can you know become comfortable with doing self custody and then you know and then going down that track as well of thinking about inheritance yeah, it's it's really important, I think, to like have the right mental model on what a key is and how it works. And so because once you kind of get that, everything else starts to fit into place. But you know, the, the thing that kind of drives me crazy sometimes is our the terminology we use. We say, Oh yeah, it's my my treasure wallet, my cold card wallet that I'm uh that I'm keeping my funds on. My Bitcoin is on my cold card, my Bitcoin is on my treasure. And that's great for a single sig. It's a pretty good mental model for a single sig because, well, your Bitcoin's not really there. Your Bitcoin's really on the ledger on everyone's node in the network. Your key is on is on that device. As long as you know your key is there, you need to be really careful with your key. You're in you're in pretty good shape. But what a lot of people don't understand is then when you go to multi sig, 
that now if you think that, you know, well, is my Bitcoin split up amongst all my different devices that are part of my multisig? How does this work? If I lose one, how much of my Bitcoin do I lose? The mental model kind of starts to break down. It's like, no, the device is just holding your key. Your Bitcoin's in the cloud. And, you know, these devices, these devices are designed to just hold that, hold that key in one place. And the other thing here is that, you know, keys are just pieces of data and they can be manipulated the same way any other device in the world can be manipulated. I love hardware devices. I love hardware wallets because they exist to do one thing. They exist to keep that key on that device and never leak it out to the outside world. But when you get into multi-state, you can start to use it, use other approaches and other ways to, uh, you know, to keep those keys that have other trade-offs, other benefits, um, and also other costs to them. Like, you know, with, uh, for instance, with, with Casa, with a number of uh, multi-state setups, you'll use one or two hotkeys as part of like your overall quorum. And that's a really bad idea if you have a lot of Bitcoin on your set, on like your, you know, your one your one key setup because a hotkey can be stolen. When you get to multi-sig, what you lose in, in that security, you know, any hotkey even stored in a good secure, you know, encrypted storage could potentially be leaked. But if it's only one key of your key set, what you gain from that is you gain that resiliency, you gain that, that redundancy. Um, and so it's one of the reasons why I really think that more people should make the jump directly to multi-sig and not say like, oh, I want to go single, single sig kind of in the middle. Single sig is a great way to go. It's a, it is a good way to get started. But if you go to multi-sig, there's actually a lot more flexibility that you have, which ultimately means more security. It does take a little bit more work on the front end to kind of think about it and understand it and set it up. But if you're willing to put in the work, you get a much, you get yourself to a much better and much more knowledgeable position right off the bat. Yeah, interesting point there. So I think for a long time in this industry, the common advice has been, you know, start on, say, a phone wallet, small amount, and then maybe progress to a hardware wallet, and then maybe get a hardware wallet with a passphrase, and then go to multi-signature. But I guess what you're saying now is actually, maybe we're starting to reach a point in this industry where people should just be going direct to multi-signature. Is that basically the argument you're sort of, you're making for people who are buying, you know, a certain amount, like, I guess, above a certain amount, you should just go straight to multi-sig? I think that that's that's pretty cl- that's pretty close. I mean, I wouldn't say skip the phone wallet part because phone wallets are great. They're hot wallets. They're fast. They're easy. You can kind of try a lot of different ones. You can play around with it. Phone wallets are a great tool for kind of learning about how it works and getting comfortable with uh, with starting to uh, you know starting to pl- play around with actual real Bitcoin on chain transactions. I think that's always the best the best place to start with, to start with very small amounts. But then once you get to the level that like okay, I do want to hold this for a long period of time. That's where I think that like understanding how these different pieces kind of fit into the overall overall security model it can be a really uh, can be a huge benefit and ultimately something that uh, not only is is safer but also just helps you understand better what's uh, what's what's really going on and what you're really doing. Right. Yeah. And I think that is an interesting point as well around the flexibility aspect, right? Because it's allowing you to be able to arguably travel in a way without risking all your coins in one go. Because if you have the keys split up and you're traveling, then it kind of helps you in that aspect. Um, But I guess probably one thing just before we get into that. So I guess just to talk through the idea around inheritance, right? As, as uh, calling back to what we were saying before, it's like, we think we're just going to live forever, right? And so at the end of the day, then for a lot of people who are just sitting on, say, a single signature hardware wallet, they're trusting and relying on the idea that their family or their son, their parents or their daughter or their son will find that 24-word seed and ideally either know the passphrase or they have it written down somewhere and they know how to access it. 
And that's basically what most people, if I had to guess, that's probably what a lot of people are relying on unless they've gone for, say, you know, for, for you guys with Casa or with one of my, my sponsors, Unchained Capital, or with an actual custodian. So I guess what's your initial kind of take there on how we should be thinking about inheritance and how should we be looking to improve that? Yeah, and it's it's a great question. It's it's really kind of an, an underexplored area. You know, there's there's basically a lot of our family members are maybe not hardcore Bitcoiners. I mean, if my wife was as deep into this this stuff as I am, you know, she would know exactly what the setup looks like. She'd know exactly where to go and find the stuff. She would be, you know, she'd be like, okay, you know, Hector, where are the sovereign recovery? the sovereign recovery instructions. Do you think I should be using Electrum or Spectre when I'm r- r- running this up? Which node should I be, which node that you're running should I be plugging into? Like, well, don't run that one. But like, you know, most of our loved ones are not quite as deep down the rabbit hole as, as, as we are. And so there's this point in which it's like, if we, you know, if our family finds themselves in a situation where we're not there to help them, they really can kind of be in a lot of trouble. It's like, you know, you may have been living a life where you're expecting to have a certain amount of uh, certain amount of wealth, certain amount of assets. But if you can't find that 24 word word seed phrase, if you can't find that hardware device, if you, you know, you've three shots on that ledger pin and you can't find where the pin's written down, you know, you can be in a in a situation where all that wealth is potentially at risk. And it's already a stressful time in, in anybody's life when you when you lose a loved one. And so it's really important to be like get this right, put a plan in place. And you also want to think about it from the other side. You know, there's potential, uh, you know, if you make it too easy for anyone in your family to get access to the funds, you know, you're potentially unintentionally introducing back doors and introducing risk into your setup. And this is like where the, you know, the cool, technical, exciting flexibility of multisig actually turns into a really important use case. One One of many, but all kind of fit into this category of like, how do you make Bitcoin management easier and more comfortable in a lot of different in a lot of different scenarios, in a lot of different cases? And inheritance is really just kind of one of the one of the most obvious and most important ones, I think, to uh, to get right here. Yeah, that's a hard one, because as you were saying, you want to make it. It depends on your situation. Obviously, everyone's situation is different, but you might be in a scenario where you don't want to give access now while you're still alive and you want it to only trigger when you die. And so maybe you need to use a lawyer or you need to. But some of us might also be in a scenario where, okay. You, you do trust fully your loved ones and you know but you, you you just need to make sure they have somebody they can call when they when something happens right and do you have you assigned a person so i guess for listeners out there you've got to think about well if something happened to you do your loved ones know who to call who to because here's the thing if they are not savvy and they just post online oh hey can someone help me? And then guess what? All the scammers are going to come and come for them and say, "Oh yeah, I can help you out. Just tell me your 12 words," right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen this myself, like I've seen people posting things like this on online on different, you know, on Twitter, on different forums. And I'll, I'll DM someone, I'll say like, look, I really know what I'm talking about. I get paid to do this, you know, and I'm, but I'm sure their DMs are full of people saying exactly, exactly that. Like, no, 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 but really, but me, like I work for, I work for this, this company. And like, we, you know, we do this, do this for a living, but there's no good way to, un- to know who to trust without, without kind of having the cultural knowledge that we've all, that we've all developed um, across across this industry, and and that's another real risk is that you find the wrong person, they could really steer steer you in in the wrong direction here, and that's why it's you have to think about this stuff ahead of time. You have to put a put a plan in place and make sure that you know 
They know what to do. Um, keep that as simple as possible, you know, in terms of managing your relationships with your, your loved ones. You know, again, my, my wife is, you know, she's on a password manager now. Um, begrud- begrudgingly, it was not her favorite. Uh, it was not her, her favorite pr- project. Our marriage survived. I'm happy, happy to say, <laughs> but, um, you know, this is, these are the kinds of issues that like these day to day issues that, you know, long term Bitcoin management is going to require us to, to address. Yeah. And it's a very good point there around long term management, right? Because, you know, as we speak today, Bitcoin price is whatever, $30,000 US per Bitcoin. But if we're right about this thing, and it's literally millions of dollars, like $10 million per coin in 10 years time or whatever, that's a lot of money. And when you're gone, you want to make sure that your family can still access that stuff. So yeah, difficult uh, conversation and difficult thing to think about and talk about, but it's a necessary conversation for many of us. So let's talk a little bit about the aspects there of using a lawyer and then using maybe a technical expert. Like how should we think about that aspect of it? Like we might have to have a lawyer hold, you know, some way of accessing one of our keys, but then you might have somebody else who's like a technical expert for your family to go to. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, well, it's, it's a great question. And I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of lawyers about, you know, about this whole approach. Um, you know, Casa's kind of original conception of how we we're going to do this was going to involve a lawyer in that process essentially as a key holder uh, we had this idea there's gonna be a bunch of lawyers out there they're gonna want to hold keys we get business for them um it'll be kind of just a normal part of the estate planning process they have a whole slew of regulatory requirements they do not want that liability and you know i have found a few lawyers who are willing to do that but they tend to be you know they tend to be lawyers who are working for one client because that client is providing them so much so much business that they're like a family attorney at that point. And so, you know, if you have a lawyer who's interested in in holding a key, that's great. Lawyers are great when it comes to estate planning and making sure all the legal the legal stuff is exactly the way that you want it. But what they're not going to be able to do is they're not going to be able to give you the guidance to make sure that the actual custody, the actual control of those assets matches what you want to have happen. Um, for that, you know, you're going to have to either do it yourself with your key management, or you're going to have to work with an expert, uh, work with a consultant, work with a trust, a trusted friend who kind of help you put the technical and the actual control side of it into place. And that's can be a pain. But the cool thing about that is if you get it right, you know, and you do this right and you put in the work, it's actually a much better solution than even what, you know, you have with, you know, with the stock, you know, with a, you know, with, with a brokerage that's, Gonna, you're going to have to go through a third party to transfer those a- assets over. You do it the right way with a self, self-custody self setup, and these assets are actually theirs. They are directly in control of your family. They can never be taken. You know, no one else outside of that can ever can ever take take control of them. So it's a much better endpoint that you that you can get to by uh, by thinking through some of the stuff ahead of time. Yeah, and so it strikes me as using services like like what Casa have. It's occupying something of a middle position because it's like a hybrid, right? You're trying to get the best of both worlds in that sense of giving you and maybe your family or your heirs some ability to control and spend those Bitcoins without relying on you know so much on someone else, right? You're not relying on a custodian to be able to do that. You can, you know, if if everything goes right, you've kind of got it all within your family. And if something goes wrong, I guess in the Casa case, Casa holds one of the keys, right? So that's also where Casa can help out there. And I think that's actually a good direction that the industry should go because as we mentioned before, you know, it's self-custody is so important to maintaining the decentralization of Bitcoin. And so if a lot of Bitcoin ends up in these big custodians, well, then it kind of goes against the point of 
you know, Bitcoin as we would like to see it, ideally. Of course, there'll be some people who use custodians and, you know, okay, fine, but we want to have a good number of people who are able to be self-sovereign, right? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is this is where I, what I really like about like the inheritance use case is that it's easier. It actually is easier to transfer assets like to your family when they're when they're in self custody. You know, even if you're going to go through, you know, go through someone like someone like Casa, who you know will a kind of provide that, you know, obviously holds a key and kind of manages a system that'll help you, you know, help you kind of permission this. But also, just is somebody at the other end of the line who you developed a relationship with as a company over the years, you know. Who is then there and able to kind of walk, uh, you know, walk your loved ones through this this scenario? You know, to me, that's like, you know, that's one of the ways that I can have a client for life is if they trust that, like, that our company is going to be able to, you know, be able to help out their family and kind of knows uh, and you know is a, and is able to make sure and that they can walk through that process. To me, that's that is such good business and the kind of business that that we want to build. And I think that the kind of business that a lot of people that are Bitcoin only want want to build. I want to see more people, you know, doing this. More people kind of taking on this, like, you know, hold your hand, not your keys type approach to uh, to building, you know, to building with within this industry. Yeah, sure. I'm curious as well. Do you know of any, let's say, common, you know, common mistakes that people make when they are, you know, doing this inheritance planning and the transition over aspect after somebody has passed? So, I mean, the the common pitfalls are really kind of embarrassing, honestly, because they're, you know, I I've seen lawyers have come to me that I've talked to who say like, we don't do this because we have this one situation where you know, we had a, you know, we had a, we had a seed phrase. It was just like bouncing around our emails and we're emailing it back and forth to each other. Like, we don't know what to do with this. Wow. Seriously. Like this is the level of, this is the, what we're talking about because no one wants to think about this and no one has really put in place a process. I think there's some people that do it. Um, but yeah, as, as far as I know, you know, Casa is the only kind of productized like solution. And it took us a really long, t- long time to get to uh we felt was, you know, a very scalable and, you know, and actually usable approach for the vast, vast majority of people who, you know, aren't paying lawyers however much money it costs to, you know, keep a single lawyer on, on, you know, on, on retainer for all your business dealings. It's just a really hard problem. And I don't think, I think it's going to be a big learning curve for the legal industry. I think it's going to be a big learning curve for our, our industry. But frankly, like from what I've seen, it's still very early days in terms of having a good approach to this. Yeah, that's really rough. And the thing is, there will be, you know, some people who, let's say, maybe they're like a big trader, and they're like an altcoiner, right? They're like a shitcoiner, and they hold like, they would just have like everything on a ledger. And it's just like a probably just a seed and a passphrase kind of setup. But those of us in the Bitcoin world are thinking very long term. And, you know, so that's why it's got to, you know, you're more likely to be on a multi-signature setup if you've got a large amount of coin. And so then that necessitates really thinking through and being careful about it. But as you said, it's, it is it is extremely early. And so I can imagine maybe people with a lot of coin are just sitting on custodians or, you know, some kind of multi-sig setup, right? Yeah, absolutely. But again, you know, the the flexibility is not just that like, you know, the flexibility of multisig really gives you a lot of tools to play around with here. And and I'll kind of get into a little bit of the specifics about how how we kind of manage this. So with Casa, uh, you know, these are all our, you know, we only offer this at our premium tier. So it's going to be a three of five account. And on a three of five, that's going to be three hardware wallets, different vendors, so that we make sure there's no, there's never, we never want a quorum of keys to be exposed to the same risk. Um, so yeah, we use different vendors within that three. And we also have 
a mobile key. Uh, this was, I was mentioning it earlier, this is a hot key. It lives on your phone, it is backed up to cloud storage. Obviously, that's never something you'd want to do with a lot of funds in a single SIG setup. But because it's only one key out of the quorum, the resiliency and the redundancy and the backups and the availability anywhere you can get access to, you know, land in a new country with the clothes on your back, buy a new iPhone, sign into iCloud, sign into Casa, and you have that key with you. That's an incredibly powerful and, flex and flexible tool just in terms of your, your overall uh, key management. So that's the mobile key, you know, basically, basically a hot key that's highly available, and then you have the Casa recovery key. So the way we think about it is when you actually want to go do an inheritance process, you're, you know, the, uh, the beneficiary is going to need to have a minimum of one hardware device. Um, and we like to say, you know, if they have more, that's great, but let's make a plan to make sure they have access to that one hardware device and they have access to the C phrase backup for it as well. And then let's work with them to figure out how to permission them and get them that mobile key, but only get it to them, you know, when, you know, when the, when the client has passed, has passed away and CASA can basically permission access. We don't hold that key. It's, um, you know, we hold the decryption key for the encrypted key that's then held on the, held on the server. That was, uh, I mean, I said that, said that kind of fast, but the backup is encrypted on iCloud and then CASA holds the decryption key for it. So we're able to basically transfer control of the account over the beneficiary that lets them get the mobile key as well. They basically either download it from cloud storage or they scan it from a QR code that they print out ahead of time. That gives them two. Cost of recovery key is number three. And now they can move funds to wherever the wherever the next step's gonna be. But it's that flexibility that you get by being able to have the mobile key, being able to have the hardware key, and being able to have the CASA key. Three very different security models all coming together in this scenario. And again, you know, we're kind of there to act as a, uh, you know, as a check, make sure that, you know, make sure you really have passed away. So you're not introducing you know, potential theft, potential backdoors, potential phishing attacks. Yeah. You know, and there's also plenty of ways in which, you know, any of our clients can do this themselves with a more, you know, kind of more self-sovereign self approach where you're working through, you know, you're working through a sovereign recovery thing where you're going to have more direct access to the seed phrases. But the approach that we want to take, we want to make sure it was, you know, it was well managed that we were, we were using all the capabilities that we have as a company to the best of our ability to make it as smooth and seam and seam and seamless as possible. I see. Yeah. And so in that approach then, is does it still stay a three of five setup, but one of the keys now is held by your, I guess your trusted beneficiary or your heir in that case? Well, so, you know, and there's there's a ton of different ways you can do it. Um, we have a bunch of different kind of approaches. Typically, yes, it will stay a three of five. But what I like to, you know, for most people, their most immediate beneficiary is most likely going to be their spouse or someone that they live with, someone that they're very close to. And so you don't even necessarily need to kind of turn over a key to them. That's just, hey, babe, it's the, uh, you know, it's in, it's in the safe. Here's the, com here's the com combination for the safe. This is the one key we keep at our house. And that's the one that's going to be kind of designated for recovery. And then if they also, you know, are able to get access to the one in the safe deposit box on the other side of town or the one, you know, up in the bunker in Saskatchewan, you got to take the helicopter up there to get into it, all that good stuff. Um, you know, that's the, uh, the, the safe lo location key. But we really only want to we want to make the plan around that one key that's most accessible, most easy to get, get access to, just to keep the problem you know as constrained as as possible. That's not the only way to do it. There's a bunch of other ways to uh, to, to to go here. Usually requires thinking about it a lot, kind of consult, consulting with us, thinking through what makes the most sense for you and your family. Um, but I like to kind of provide like the easiest pathway as like as like you know, the most common kind of de kind of default approach. There, of just saying. Hey, it's the key that's you know we already have in our in our in our house. 
it's easy and it's accessible. Back to the show in a moment. So we're talking about inheritance. Have you also thought about recovery? How would your heirs recover your coins? Well, with cyphersafe.io, they are producing metal backup seed products and they've got a new one coming out. It's called the Cypher Grid. This is the best value in the industry. You get everything you need for $59. It has two stainless steel plates for all 24 of your seed words. It's got privacy by default. It's stainless steel hardware that holds this all together. It can be locked with a padlock. You get a tamper evidence seal and you get an automatic center punch provided. And just like all CypherSafe products, it's made from stainless steel. It's fireproof, rustproof, and waterproof. So make sure you or your loved ones can access your coins. If an accident occurs, go to cyphersafe.io and use the code LAVERA for a discount. And next up is my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, the cold card. So this is a great choice if you have your coins on the exchange or maybe you're on a phone wallet and you need to upgrade now to a hardware wallet. The cold card is really versatile. You can use it with Sparrow Wallet or Spectre or Electrum. Now, some people say it's a little hard if they are new, but I think you can make certain trade-offs with the cold card to help ease that new coiner into the process. So you might use it on Sparrow with the default setup. You might not have a passphrase and you might get them to direct plug the device instead of using the micro SD air gap, which is a feature with the cold card. And then later, they can upgrade to using these features like seed XOR or having a passphrase or potentially even using the cold card as part of a multi-signature setup. So go to coinkite.com and use the code Levera to order your cold card. And finally, Unchained Capital. So if you are sitting on a single signature phone wallet or hardware wallet, or you've left your coins on the exchange, well, check out Unchained. They can help you get set up with multi-signature. So you can have multiple devices, keep them in different locations, and this will dramatically improve your security standpoint. So with Unchained Capital, you can buy two hardware wallets, and that's Trezor, Ledger, Cold Card, and you can get set up with a vault. Now, if you need help, they offer a concierge service, and that's available for individuals or for businesses. You can pay that upfront fee, use code Levera for a discount there. They'll do some calls with you. They'll ship hardware wallets to you and get you set up with a vault. Having a multi-signature vault will give you a lot more peace of mind in terms of how you secure and store your Bitcoin for the long term. Unchained also offer loans so you can borrow against your Bitcoin and they also have a range of educational material about Bitcoin. And my favorite is Gradually Then Suddenly, the series by Parker Lewis. So go and find out more at unchained.com. And now back to the show. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. And yeah, as you said, it's that flexibility of having one of the keys be the hot encrypted key, mobile key that is able to be transitioned over to the heir or the beneficiary or the spouse or whoever, and then the combo of that that three or five. And so I guess just for listeners as well, if you're new, part of this whole idea is the idea is we are trying to eliminate single points of failure. So the idea being you don't have enough of a quorum on you at any one given time. So that way someone can't just go gun to the head. Hey, pay me all your Bitcoins right now. You're going to have to say, well, no, you're going to have to take me to you know this security vault or you're going to have to take me overseas because I've got a key over there or something like that to make it, I guess, an extremely expensive attack. And so that's the general idea we're going with here. And then I'm actually curious as well, like with that whole idea of geographically distributing keys, what's been, you know, the CASA approach and thought around that right now in the kind of this age of, you know, COVID hysteria restrictions? Has that been difficult for uh, CASA customers or have they kind of found a way around or managed around this? 
It's definitely been a, it was definitely kind of an unexpected challenge that, that came up for us. You know, it, typically it just means more use of the cost of recovery key because, you know, anyone who's looking to move, to move funds around is going to, you know, basically they need one, a minimum of one hardware device to sign with themselves, plus the mobile key that gets you to two. And most people have, you know, fairly ready access to that mobile key, obviously on your phone, and then that one hardware device that, they, that you keep relatively close at hand. And so it's just about getting that, uh, you know, getting that third signature. Typically, you might have another key like within your metro area. But if you know the banks are closed and there's all kinds of other travel restrictions, that can definitely be a, be a challenge. And that's where Casa comes in. We hold the we hold the, the recovery key. Give us a call. We'll verify do all our security checks. Make you wait for a, a security delay. But then after that, you know, we'll sign sign a transaction on your, on your behalf and you can move funds. Yeah, you know, we did have some people who I think rethought their setup a little bit and had us ship them another hardware wallet. So, you know, because they knew they weren't going to get access to something that was in another country for a very long time. Um, and so then they just, you know, rotated that key out, rotated a new key in with uh, the new hardware that we, that we shipped them. Did that, did that kind of uh, that transfer using their, uh, their mobile key, the key they had access to and the cost recovery key. And then they, you know, that, that new key they added in, they, they kept it a bit close, closer at hand. So they would be able to sign on their own. Yeah, it's a tricky one, but uh, I think yeah, you're right. It's it, it's just about thinking through carefully. What am I going to be able to access? And hopefully, over time, if the restrictions come down and people can move and travel around a bit more easily, then it kind of gets back to a more ideal scenario where you can move around more freely and put the keys in harder to reach locations, so that that way it's hard, better from a security point of view, right? One of the uh, yeah, one of the interesting things that we've also seen is a lot more people, a lot more people, kind of living a more nomadic life lifestyle and moving around a lot. And that's definitely been an interesting challenge to, to help people deal with, but a pretty cool one as well, because there's just ways in which with multi-sig, if you're moving around, you can make sure that, you know, generally speaking, you always have access to your funds, but you can also do things, you know, to make sure that while you're traveling, you know, you're never going to going to run into a problem where, you know, some sketchy border guard is going to, is going to give you a hard time or, you know, what, you know, or you, you get mugged or something like that. So, you know, one thing that we do, for instance, is, you know, we, you know, we have this emergency lockdown feature. They'll lock down the account until you can get in touch with Casa. Um, and so something that some people will do is they'll say, Hey, can I do an emergency lockdown while I'm traveling? We said, yeah, sure. Absolutely. And that way you can actually travel with two keys, but you also know that, you know, you're not going to be able to log into your, to your Casa account. You're not going to be able to get access to that mobile key. It was totally shut down until you call up and you go through, you know, you go through myself or someone on my team who's going to verify, yes, it's really you, you're safe in your, in your new country. And now we can go ahead and, un and unlock that account for you. So there's just a lot of flexibility that you get with multi-sig. And that's really like, that's the biggest thing that I think that people miss is like, yes, this is all about security. It's all about the, you know, keeping your funds the most secure way possible, but it also opens up a whole world. So it's not just like I put that ledger in the drawer and forget about it and pray that, you know, the maid never notice, never knows to look for a seed phrase, but it opens up flexibility for inheritance, for travel, for all these different kinds of challenges that, uh, and, you know, life situations that, uh, that, that apply, apply to everybody. Yeah. Anyways, I, I just want to see, I want to see more approaches to it. I want to see more people kind of taking advantage of some of this stuff. 
Yeah, that's really cool about the nomadic people aspect and being able to temper it, like to lock down the account for a little while and then reopen it back up. And I'm curious as well, maybe obviously without doxing any particular customers or whatever, but have there been any customers who've, you know, or at least in the industry, have you heard of people who've had trouble, let's say, moving through the airport, you know, how you got to put your think your bag through and you know whether they would i don't know look at your hardware wallets and say oh is that something dodgy or or another one people have is um that concern about if let's say they had to take like a seed plate through and would that be visible in like that x-ray machine that you have to go through when you're flying i don't i don't know if you've got any experiences or kind of things you've heard on that yeah it's a it's a great question so first of all on a personal level i fly with so much hardware devices and Faraday bags. It's all Casa stuff. It's not, it's not nothing, none of my pers- personal stuff, which I lost in boating accident course, a very long yeah. time ago. Um, so I, why well, it works, so, works so hard, hard at Casa to keep, to st- stack that Bitcoin. But yeah, I, you know, I've never personally had, had an issue. You know, my, generally my recommendation is if you're going to take a Faraday bag with a hardware device, you know, throw a bunch of other, you know, throw a bunch of other like USB sticks and other kind of just electronic junk in there. And, you know, most guards are, you know, most, most, you know, security agents are going to say, ah, just, you know, a bunch of, bunch of stuff. I'm not, I'm not too worried about this. You definitely want to be very careful if you are traveling with, if you need to travel with like a quorum, if you need to travel with like, you know, two keys plus a mobile, plus a mobile phone, you want to be extremely careful about how you do that. And that's when like pin codes become important. That's when, you know, features like the lockdown, like, you know, actually locking your account down. And then also on top of that, deleting the app off your phone, things like that become uh, become really important. But generally speaking, if you're just traveling with a single hardware device, just make it look like it's not a big deal. You know, the, if you if it's if it seems like you're trying to hide it or it seems like you're trying to do something weird with it, you're a lot more likely to, uh, you know, to draw someone's attention than if it just it just looks like, you know, it's kind of a mess in your in your back in your backpack, which isn't hard for a lot of us, a lot of us to do in the first place anyways. Yeah, of course, of course. And I'm curious, one other thing came up to my mind is the seedless approach that CASA take. But you also mentioned that your beneficiary might have a seed as well. So how, how does that part work? Is Are you saying for that specific key in the inheritance case, where you're using, you know, you're having one party hold one key, they should also hold like the 24 words on a seed plate or some kind of metal backup for it? Or what's the difference there? Yeah, absolutely. I love this because I get to get into the nitty gritty of how we think about this stuff again, because we actually changed our approach a little bit and we say we are partially seedless. So the way I think about it is we have two of our keys are highly resilient. They're not going to be lost. They're recoverable in a bunch of different situations. That's that mobile key we talked about. And that's that cost of recovery key available to you anywhere you go in the world. And then from there, we want to make sure the rest of our keys are very secure because, you know, resilient, accessible around the world means potentially able to be stolen. So with only the three hardware wallets, which are very secure and two out of the three of those are going to be so secure we're not even going to back them up. And the assumption is if you lose one of those hardware devices, we are not going to restore that same key on a new hardware device. We're just going to replace the key entirely, replace the device, obviously, but also just get a brand new key. And what we're going to do is we're going to use four of the remain three of the remaining four keys in your setup to, uh, to do a key rotation, which is basically a transfer of funds from the old account to the new account. So that's what we do with those with those uh, two hardware devices if we were to lose them, the ones that we don't have the seed phrase for. We are now encouraging people to hold on to one of their seed phrases in part for inheritance reasons because this is going to give you kind of an additional backup 
that a uh, you know that your that your loved one could could recover, but also you know just as kind of an additional piece of resiliency, we want that key to be basically you know instead of one hundred percent you know single location, very secure you know but not recoverable, we want it to be like ninety eight percent super secure single location, but we also like to have a little bit of that backup, a little bit of that reco- recoverability on that one as as well to kind of get us to get us a little bit more more flexibility. There's also some other fun things you can do if you want to get to like your 301 level multi-sig with cloning the device and having different copies of the same key on different hardware devices in different locations. You can get super fancy with all this stuff. But bottom line is that we do like having one seed phrase for one of the hardware devices available. And that's a pretty subtle shift, but a pretty important one when it comes to uh, when it comes to kind of thinking about the holistic picture of recoverability versus security of your of, of your keys. Gotcha. Yeah. So put in other words, then it's like your CASA mobile key can be recovered. The CASA recovery key, you guys have got that covered and you've got that obviously able to be recovered. And then now you want to have of those three remaining hardware worlds, you want to have the seed plate or seed, you know, phrase backed up for at least one of those for just one of those three. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that that, exactly. And it's, you know, so three keys are recoverable. Three keys are, are single location. And uh, we're very careful with how you manage that that seed phrase. It's going to go in a tamper-out bag. We're actually going to recommend that you store it in the same location that the key itself is. So it's again that same assumption. Like if your house burns down and the key and the seed plate and the seed are in your house, that's fine because you have the other ones that are not there. They're able able to recover it. But we don't want to kind of start to increase more complexity by moving that seed phrase somewhere else or combining it with another with another key. So still. We basically assume that it's a pretty, you know, that same single location model, so that those that key is never in multiple places, but does give us a lot more, uh, a lot more flexibility, a lot more recoverability, also in some different scenarios. Right. Yeah, and then that can give us a little bit more. Let's say someone is really paranoid about bit rot, or you know, something happening. Yep. Then this is one thing that helps you that you know that you can always recover it because you've at least got that one hardware wallet with the seed phrase written down or ideally on a metal backup that's stored with the hardware wallet and then mobile key plus CASA recovery key, which means you will be able to spend even if you lost the other two hardware wallets. And I guess that there can be a lot of complexity in this as well, because for people who are doing, let's say, the DIY method, then they have to make sure even if they lost one of their hardware wallets that they've still got the public keys for all of them and that's like a common you know like a thing that people don't necessarily understand if they unless they're kind of really deep into the technical details of how all this stuff works so that's one point there also wondering what your thoughts are on the various different hardware wallets i know uh, they have i guess different levels of multi-signature support like i know for example cold card and trezor tend to be very multi-sig friendly whereas i think as i understand the ledger is perhaps a bit less multi-sig friendly than the others what's been your experience with that and is that shifting over time and changing yeah i mean you know i, I work with trezor ledger and, and cold card most uh, m- most directly they're all good good devices they all have different different trade-offs you know i would say my personal favorite is the cold card and what i like about that is i really like their approach to to ux um it's a little more complicated it takes a little bit more doing but it's like a you know it's like it's like pop pop up in the hood the hood of a car you know a new car all you're gonna see is like a box and then like you know there's gonna be like chips and boards in there and you're not you know no like you know at home do it yourself or is going to be able to do anything on a new car an old car you can see how everything is working inside so see the timing belt, you can see the piston, you can see you know, the, the oil intake, you know, there's all the different parts of it. You can see and it's all right out there in front of you. And to me, that's how a cold card is. 
you see everything it's doing. It's very, you know, everything is kind of laid out there and you understand clearly what's going on under the hood. Trezor is a is great for, you know, people that are a lot newer because it's not going to give you all that complexity right off, right off the bat. Um, and I think that's a great device. Ledger's kind of in, in the middle. I think it's pretty user-friendly. Frankly, the, the little, just the way the UX works with the buttons is not not my favorite in the world. But yeah, I like all the hardware devices for, for different reasons, but I'm most excited about QR code signing. This is going to make multi-sig so much easier. This is going to make all the stuff that, that we do so much easier because you no longer have to deal with all the complexity of like the USB hub and the different USB drivers and the different operating systems, the different browsers, all of these pieces that kind of get between you and and the device that are you know have nothing to do with bitcoin have nothing to do with you know you know that really couldn't care less about you know what you're what you're try, trying to do with it all those pieces go away is directly from device to device camera to camera it just makes life a lot easier so i'm really excited about all the uh, all the all the new qr code signing that's coming uh, coming on, online soon Right, yeah, so that might be useful then in the case of something like Foundation device or uh, Spectre DIY, which is out nowadays. Uh, I know Kobo also has QR code scanning, but I know Kobo has just recently gone through a little bit of a kerfuffle there, and it looks like Lixen has split away out to kind of do that. But yeah, hopefully the overall ecosystem expands in terms of options, as you're saying, around QR codes. And so for listeners who are unfamiliar, basically... It passes that transaction back and forth using QR code scanning. So the wallet will scan the QR and then on the other side, you'll flip it back. And then the device, let's say the laptop or the phone that you're using will then scan and ingest that signed transaction from the physical hardware wallet or signing device. Maybe that's a more correct term or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great. It's literally passing the raw transaction data across in just this, this visual kind of code format. And, you know, it takes like nine different QR codes to kind of get the whole, uh, you know, get, get the whole payload across every time. But I mean, it was just a, it's one of the, you know, I think every, all these improvements that we do on nodes, on hard wallets and all the kind of hard pieces of, of Bitcoin tech, they feel like, you know, you're, you're grinding to edge out those like 5% improvements, those like 7% improvements, which are great and necessary, but it just always feels like so much work for like a little bit of gain. I feel like the QR code signing is a 10x improvement in terms of the, the the user experience. It has the potential to totally just change the approachability of multi-sig, of using Bitcoin securely, of using hardware wallets, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that's cool to see. I'll tell you what, though. I mean, maybe not to be too much of a downer on it, but sometimes I've played around, obviously, with different setups, and sometimes you, I get weird results if, you know, depending on which software you're using and, like, depending on the lighting in the room and things like that, yeah. but... But I think I, I definitely agree with you, though. It is a big improvement overall that you get from having the QR setup. And I mean, for me, I have I have multiple setups going and I'm testing things and trying different things out and so on. So that's kind of my experience with it. So, yeah, I guess kind of where do you think this industry is going? Like, do you think we're going to be able to get multi-sig to the masses? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, yes, is the answer. Absolutely. We're going to be able to get multi-sig to the masses, but I'm not sure they're going to know that it's multi-sig. Um, I'm not sure that they're going to be thinking about like, oh yeah, well, you know, this person holds PubKey one, this person holds PubKey two, this is, you know, this is how, how it works. I have like these three signing devices. Where I think we're going to go with it is I think it's going to go to, you know, I think that what I do, you know, is going to be very professionalized. I think there's going to be a lot of people doing 
what I do right now. And essentially, you know, there's some freelancers out there. There's us, there's, you know, there's, there's Unchained. There's, you know, maybe a dozen people in, in the US who at least work for a company and get paid to basically like be a kind of professional Bitcoin consultant and help people with their security. I think that in order for this to scale, you know, or in order for Bitcoin to scale, I think you're going to need to see us, this role basically become as common as you know, something like a lawyer or an accountant, you know, just the the professional expert who can help guide anybody through, you know, through through this world and show them how to do it the right way. It's, uh, you know, a lawyer is your agent. They're basically acting on your behalf in the legal system. It's very different from a banker who, while they kind of say they're acting on your behalf, they they actually control the keys. They actually control the, control the funds directly. <laughs> they're standing between you and your money. And so to me, I think that that's, that's really what I, what I want to see happen. I want to see more people, you know, more Bitcoiners kind of saying, in what way can I be, you know, Uncle Jim for, you know, for my community? How can I be Uncle Jim for my family? How can I run a node? How can I hold a key in their multi-city? How can I help them recover all this stuff? And ultimately, like, I want to see that professionalized. I want to see, you know, I want to see people getting paid for this. I want to, you know, build, build models that allow Bitcoiners to like, just be Bitcoiners and help help everyone else in the world kind of tap into this network in an, you know, in an open, you know, permissionless and, and ultimately a way that, that supports the network. I think we need to build the, you know, we have a decentralized network, but we have to actually build the human decentralization on top of it. Because if, if we don't do it that way, you're right. It's all the Bitcoins going to end up in the hands of custodians, all the, you know, all the, all the miners are going to end up in, you know, in giant pools that are, you know, that then become these honeypots for governments or these honeypots for, for other attackers to start, you know, start ch- chipping away at the network. So that's what I want to see. I think it's definitely happening. You know, there's there's more interest in the stuff that we're doing. You're starting to see other companies coming online to, th- to think about this. Um, I don't know. Compass Mining is a really interesting one where, you know, they're kind of taking that same approach to and doing on the mining doing on the mining side. Um, I don't, I need to kind of dig in on what's going on with, you know, some of the lightning stuff, but I see a lot of that as a potential future for growing up the light, the lightning network. Um, obviously what, you know, strike and the, and those guys are doing, I think it's a little bit different. Um, but this is where I see the industry going. If we're going to be decentralized is that Bitcoiners are going to, you know, build businesses, but not, you know, giant hyperscale tech businesses, build person, person businesses where your clients, helping them out, out with this stuff. You maybe have a couple partners, maybe you have a couple of pe- people working for you, but that's how we kind of build the decentralization into the net, into like the human layer that is going to match up the decentralization of the network. And so that's, that's where I really want to see the industry going. Yeah. So as an example, we've seen Bitcoin Beach with their community bank kind of wallet, and they've got like a multi-sig for the on-chain you know, aspect of it. And then Lightning, which is like a custodial Lightning wallet shared by the user, by the thousands of users. And then, yeah, so maybe we see that as a model for various communities around the world where they have some kind of multi-sig bank operated by different you know people in the community. And that also brings up the question then as well, because do you think the industry will standard or standardize around certain approaches and uh, certain standard ways of storing most of your coin, right? So maybe let's say most people have, you know, Moon Wallet or Phoenix or Breeze just as their little day-to-day lightning wallet. And most people are not going to be running a routing node, right? Let's be honest. Although many of my listeners are the kind of person who would, but 
the average day-to-day user just have a lightning wallet and then for their stack for their hodl stack you know their life savings that's where they get the multi-sig and you know i wonder whether that will standardize into certain approaches and you know we'll have like a standardized two of three approach or a standardized three of five approach do you see that kind of thing happening or do you kind of see it more just like there'll just be a multitude of various options with passphrases this and you know seed phrase you know seed phrases stored here that kind of thing That's a good question. I tend to think that like, I think there's going to be some kind of standard approaches that make a lot that make a lot of sense uh, to most people. But I don't think it's going to be totally standardized because there's just so many kind of cultural differences. And this is just one of those things that I love about Bitcoin is that, you know, it has to, you know, it's so simple. And like the ideas are, you know, we want to have this base layer that's like the minimum amount that we can agree on. It's like the minimum viable consensus is like the whole thing that that Bitcoin is about. Like, and that's what money is just like, what's the least that we can all agree on given all our differences across humanity? What's the least that we can agree on so we can do business with each other and we can go and we can go from there. And so I think you're going to have all kinds of all kinds of different setups because, you know, for me, what, what makes the most sense for my, you know, for, for my client base is going to be wildly different than, you know, someone who's trying to create a, you know, a Bitcoin beach type community. It's going to be wildly different from someone, you know, from like a Swiss, you know, a Swiss private banker who's like only serves like the highest and most like ultra high net worth types, you know, who ha- want nothing to do with, with the, you know, with the technical side or as little to do as that is with that as possible is going to be totally different from like a family in, you know, in India or a family in China that has to like avoid the, the authoritarian regime that's, that's cracking down on it. You know, there's just, there's so many, you know, there's, you know, Bitcoin is, will be as diverse as, as kind of the human experiences. And, and ultimately you're going to have all kinds of different approaches to, you know, to custody that will match up the way that people kind of map their relationships across the people that, ma- that matter to them. So yeah, I think it's, I think there's definitely going to be kind of some primitives that just make sense from a technical standpoint, but I think that also like, there's just so many different ways to do it. And, and multisig really introduces those, that potential to kind of like create different approaches that make sense for different, like small, tight, intimate group, groups of people. Yeah. I, so maybe one way to think of it is like in the early years, there were different approaches tried. And I think people have sort of found which of those were quote unquote dead ends, right? So one would be having everything on a single signature wallet that for a large amount of coin, that's basically a dead end. No one really does that. Shamir's secret sharing, kind of a dead end, right? Like unless you're doing it in like a very special context and it's only one part of your overall setup, that kind of thing. Whereas in the past that used to be seen as like, oh, this is maybe, maybe this is how it'll be done in the future. You know, so maybe it will be certain standardized approaches around multi-sig for large amounts of coins and then different configurations that are popular, but people might have all of their own little flavors and spins on it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, to me, this is like, this is the beat, again, it's like, it's the great thing about, about Bitcoin is, you know, technology can scale out to the world. And this is what, you know, this is like the whole idea of, you know, of the internet and like, you know, build a product with like, you know, one guy, Satoshi built Bitcoin. And then it scaled to the whole world. And that's and that's beautiful. But, you know, the the layers that you build on top of it have to kind of account for that different human context and the different experiences of people. Otherwise, it's just like you're kind of flattening every everything. If it's like, OK, well, yeah, now, you know, the same Facebook platform is going to serve everybody in the world. But it's going to serve everyone in kind of, kind of the same way. So, you know, the Bitcoin's like social scalability a- aspect to it and just the kind of like the way in which it doesn't you know, it requires kind of the minimum level of input and then lets uh lets the users kinda 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 do the rest and add the add the context to it. 
that to me is like the future that, you know, really kind of bright future that brings the best of technology in with like, you know, and leaves aside some of the, uh, some of the, some of the baggage that it brought with it in, uh, you know, in the, in the kind of the first, the first iteration, the web, uh, you know, the web 1.0 and, and 2.0 versions that I think are going to be left, left behind. Right. Yeah. So look, let's bring it back then. So let's summarize some of the key points, I guess. So if you had to leave some tips for listeners who are thinking about Bitcoin and inheritance, maybe what would you tell them and maybe split it up and maybe some of the listeners who are you know, not Casa customers and then any tips for those who are Casa customers? Yeah, of course. So, you know, if you're thinking about inheritance, the most important thing to do is take the time, sit down, think about it and go through it. And then take the time and sit down with your loved ones and take you know, take them through it as well. You want to make sure that they're going to be able to get access to that, uh, you know, to whatever the quorum is. If it's a single SIG, you're going to want to make sure they have access to the, the device. You're going to want to make sure they have access to the seed phrase. If you use a passphrase, it's critically important that they have access to that too, because, you know, without the passphrase, they don't, you know, they, they can have the private key and they, they will not have access to the funds. So it's important that they, you know, that you have a plan in place for them to access, you know, whatever it's going to take to move those funds. And the other really important thing is that they know someone to, you know, they they know someone who you trust, who they can get it, get in touch with to help them because they're going to have questions. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be a hard thing for them to navigate, and you don't want them to be in a position where. They don't know who to go to for that for for that help. They don't know who to get in touch with or how to get how to get in touch with someone that you know that they should trust. So that's that's really the the most important thing, you know. And for I I don't think I have any like specific advice for Casa clients other than you know email email me and we'll get you onboarded and all all that kind of stuff. You know the the other thing that I I would just I would just leave for anybody is keep it simple as much as you can. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about like, what is the one thing that a beneficiary has to do? So we have like an envelope that, you know, the beneficiary will get us like, go and open up the envelope and here's where all the, here's where all the, all the stuff is. And so if you're doing it yourself, it's like, what's the one place they can go to to get all this stuff, but then make sure you're also thinking about the security of that, which uh, which can certainly get, get complicated. You know, bottom line is, Get help if you need it, uh, but there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of ways to do this, and there's going to be a lot of people in the industry who are going to come up with all kinds of solutions on on how to tackle exactly this problem. Excellent. And uh, Hector, for listeners who want to find you online, where can they find you, and where can they find Casa? Yep, you can find uh, me on Twitter. I am uh, Hector R, so Hector with an extra R on there, one five nine. That's uh, that's Twitter, and then we're at Keys casa uh pretty pretty simple there and uh yeah my dms dms are open always happy to talk bitcoin inheritance whatever whatever else and uh that's uh yeah best way to get in touch thank you hector all right Stefan, have a good one so share the episode with your family and friends find me at stefanlevera.com slash 286 and of course if you're liking the show make sure you leave a review so that new people can find me that's it for me i'll see you guys in the citadels mm-hmm.